Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie reviews and discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these reviews and discussions might include spoilers. So rounding out last month's body horror-themed chats is a film that leaves the viewer changed for better or worse with each subsequent viewing. That film being Shinya Tsukamoto's 1981 metallic nightmare Tetsuo the Iron Man, in which after hitting, killing, and disposing of the body of a metal fetishist, a man and his girlfriend are plagued by a hellish curse that engulfs their flesh in metal. And joining me this week to chat sex, metal, and mutilation is returning friend of the show and freelance writer, Mr. Pat Brennan. Pat, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, thank you for having me back. This is, uh, is this three or four? I think this is the third time I've had you on. It is, uh, it has always been a pleasure to chat horror with you, my friend. Same here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is quite the film for us to be chatting about. You and I, I think, arrived at this film, you know, unbeknownst to us, but we both arrived at this film in a similar time frame, right? I mean, you said, I think you'd seen this last year for the first time. Um, and that was also my time, my first time actually watching this movie that, you know, it's one of those that is so infamous and so well known within the horror community. And yet it feels like an experience that most of us go into and no matter what we know about it going into it or what we've heard or clips we've seen, more or less, we're completely unprepared for it, I think is uh, safe to say. Yeah, I actually, so it's funny, I think back in 2010, a buddy of mine put this on at a party and we had had a few, um, you know, soda pops, as it were. Um, and uh, he, I just saw the, the Iron Man part. And I was like, oh, cool, Iron Man. And he's like, yeah, this is Japanese Iron Man. You're going to love it. Um, <laughs> and I I don't have many memories about that that evening. But I do remember just being completely overwhelmed in the first 10 minutes. And... Um, and getting us to switch it to, I don't know, something else. But uh, it felt like a cruel joke. Um, and then, um, last year, I finally watched the full thing in earnest. And and um, it was a wonderful, mind-expanding experience. <laughs> um, I It was, like, in the middle of the summer. And we were um, staying with my in-laws at the time. And uh, I had my i had my tv in one of their like it was like in this like guest room this tiny guest room that the tv was as big as like almost as wide as that room um and i remember sitting sitting there probably about three feet away from the tv because of how big the room was and i had i had the movie i, I turned the movie on and i was watching it with headphones on these like stereo headphones and it and and also it was extremely hot because of the summer so i was just like in my underwear like perspiring buckets and then it's like that panasonic commercial where like the guy recline in the recliner and then the he hits the stereo and then the, the yeah the the pulses of sound <laughs> just demolish him that's what that that hour felt like it was like it's the most visceral experience and another thing um, this might be the, maybe one of the first episodes you've had where your guest has no fucking clue what the movie is about or how to describe <laughs> what is happening. Um, well, I was listening to your, your description clarified some things for me, um, which is strange because I've seen this movie three times now. Um, but every time I'm just like, I, c I can't, 
I, I don't know what's happening, but I love it. It's kind of like that, you know, that Merch Simpson quote from uh, uh, when uh, John Waters guested on the show and he said something about um, uh, Mrs. Lovejoy's uh, curtains not matching the drapes, if you catch my meaning. And Marge says, I don't, but I loved hearing it. That's how I feel about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to put it, because, you know, it is a movie that I think I've seen now three times over the course of a year, a year and a half. And I feel like the first time you just if somebody watches this movie for the first time and walks away with an understanding of what they just watched, they deserve some sort of medal of some sort or some kind of accolade, (laughs) because it is a movie that is so such a sensory overload in every sense of the word and the phrase that to walk away and have a clear understanding other than like how it made you feel is an achievement in and of itself, right? Because this is very much a movie that I think it rely like I would say the first viewing solely relies on shock value because it's clearly a film from somebody that is a visionary that has an understanding of what they want to say, but it's not necessarily it's not exactly like told to the audience in a way that is from the viewpoint of maybe a storyteller. I think this is more of a film that, you know, obviously my understanding and appreciation for it grows with every rewatch. But I think initially what really stands out about Sukumoto's sensibilities as a filmmaker is that he's evoking a feeling that's attributed to everything. And, you know, there's a lot of emotion in this movie too, which is something that I think, I was taken aback by and realizing after a rewatch. I mean, I watched it when I was uh, sick for the first time and had it like, and had either the flu or a fever or whatnot and like fell asleep three fourths of the way through and woke up and was like, I don't remember anything of that or understood anything other than how it made me feel, how oppressive this movie is, how overwhelming this movie is in every regard, whether it be, you know, the visuals whether it be the taboo subject matter, whether it be this blaring industrial soundtrack that really like rattles you to your core in the best way possible because it mm. is so complimentary of the visuals and of how uncomfortable a lot of the taboo mat- subject matter is and things like that. Or, you know, his maybe his uh, metallic horror rendition of taboo subject matter uh, is what <laughs> is uncomfortable about it, right? But it's a film though that I think for being, and, you know, I could be mistaken. I don't remember if this is his debut film or not, but I'm pretty sure it was his first horror film. But for a film to be that impressionable upon me from their first instance, and it might not be, again, the best example of, like, storytelling, but I think that what sticks with me is just the way this movie makes me feel. And if anything, that is a quality that I think is a lot more rare from a filmmaker, whether it be, you know, their first or third film even. Um, that's a quality of this film that I think transcends time and even understanding, right? I mean, I've seen it now three times and, you know, through research and things like that, you get to pick up on certain, not to not to try to portray myself as being a genius that understands this movie. Like I did a fair <laughs> amount of research to uncover and fill in the blanks uh, of some of the more abstract moments in storytelling or like, what the hell was this about? Like this didn't make any sense and now getting a better understanding of it. But it's still the fact that like, it makes me uncomfortable and it excites me in a way that, you know, as somebody that loves body horror so much, it makes this movie a standout that I think is not only complimented by, you know, being, I think it's 77 minutes long, like that in and of itself is inviting rewatches, mm-hmm. but it's a film that really revels in being its own thing. And, you know, 
that is not necessarily a new concept when it comes to specifically horror movies, like a director finding their weird niche and leaning into that and being unapologetic about it. But at the same time, though, like this really feels like it's ahead of the curve in that way, because while we can throw out different films that this might be like or draw inspiration from or body horror or other subgenres it might be a part of, there really is nothing like this in a way that still feels refreshing all these years later. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. Like it feels completely alien from the outside, but it's also an obviously like deeply personal movie for Tsukamoto. Am I pronouncing his name right, Tsukamoto? Tsukamoto, I Thank believe. God. You know, again, that's uh, that's two white guys. Hopefully, not butchering uh, a talented director's name. But well, and it, it's it's got that that vibe to it where because he directed it, he wrote it, he edited it, he did. Um, I believe he's uh, in it as well. He, he's he plays in it. the uh, the metal fetishist. The metal at the very fe- beginning. fetishist. Um, art direction. Um, part of the cinematography. <laughs> um, did I already say he produced it? Oh, no. Yep. And he produced it. <laughs> and he produced it. Like, this is clearly a very personal project. And, and it's got that um, that manic energy of, like, both... I think I said to you at one point that I've never done coke, but I imagine that this must be what it, <laughs> it must feel like when you've had too much of it. It's got that energy, but also the energy of, like, like a puppy that's really excited to see you. Like, he's this young filmmaker with a lot of ideas that he's trying to cram into this one picture, and he's doing he's doing everything that he can to, um, to bring it to life. And it's just this... I don't know. It's just... Because, you know, like, film is this collab... Usually this collaborative um, art form, and there's obviously some collaboration in this, but with him being so hands-on in so many aspects of its production, it just, it feels like a window into his mind um, in in a way that a few other films do, I guess, that few, at least that I've seen. I would say also, like, to go up, to build off of that, that, like, puppy dog energy that the movie has, which I think is perfect. That's a perfect description of this movie. Coked up That's puppy dog. That's a quality, dog. yeah, coked <laughs> up puppy dog. <laughs> That's a quality, though, that I find incredibly endearing. I find, like, the way that I picture, again, like, not to present myself as being incredibly well-versed in his filmography or in his sensibilities as a director. I believe this is actually the only film of his I've seen. But if anything, it tells you how much I like this movie. I want to go and check out the rest of his filmography. This is great. I watched that, that was my next too, question yeah, is like, have you Hammer. seen any of the, uh, the, I believe there's two sequels that I definitely need to check out. But I find it so endearing that this is a film that at every single moment of the movie, like whether it be that erratic energy, whether it be a lot of like strange subject matter, strange visuals, the music sensibilities, it feels like a film that somebody so wholeheartedly believes in, in a way that they can't control their enthusiasm almost for what they're doing to the degree that I get the sense when I watch this movie that that coked up energy is a creative that's incredibly passionate that at the same time carries it as if like, this might be the only movie I ever make. If I, this is the only thing I ever make, then this is my vision out there. And I didn't leave anything on the cutting room floor as it was. Um, It's the type of movie that, you know, that energy actually is at times might be a fault of the film, right? Sort of what I said in that it has this very abstract, not the most clear cut storytelling. It's confusing at times and it's not because it is 
an overly complex plot. If anything, it's incredibly simplistic once you kind of rewatch it and, you know, do a little research into it or read about it more. But it doesn't feel that it's indicative of somebody that is this, that is super familiar with storytelling in a way that the audience is cued in, which is why I think it's such an emotionally charged movie. And the fact that the emotions of the movie are what come through in the most clear-cut way through, you know, a lot of fucked up visuals and whatnot, which we'll unpack, I'm sure. It's still the fact, though, that he's able to relay specific emotions and dabble in subject matter that not a lot of people for this very niche corner of horror were necessarily dabbling in, in a way that, again, I just find it a very endearing project front to back because it's somebody that so wholeheartedly believes in this might might be skeptical about there even being an audience past like him or his close friends or family or, you know, the hardcore horror fans like ourselves who at the time would probably see this for the, you know, body horror gem or go so far as to say like masterpiece that it is. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's still a weird fucking movie. And the idea that somebody would make this and be like, oh, everybody's going to love this is preposterous. Even if, you know, the all these years later, it has gotten that cult status. It has gotten that fandom around it. There's a confidence to his uh, his filmmaking that is yeah kind of intoxicating. Like he he approaches it like 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 obviously people are gonna like this. Like obviously people or or he doesn't give a fuck about whether people are gonna like it or or if people want to hear about it. Like he's just getting it out there. Um, it's like and the level of like detail that he puts into things. Like I find like like the stop motion scenes and and stuff. Like you you really get a sense after rewatching it a few times how layered these visuals are. They remind me almost of those like uh, you know like the uh, the really intricate uh, like death metal band logos that are so dense that you can't even really read what the what the fuck they're saying. <laughs> but if you like yeah. really zero in with your focus, you can see how much work and care went into putting these things together that's what this reminds me of a little bit yeah every scene like that too and again that comes back to the idea that when you're re-watching it you really do because you know it's so overwhelming the first time you watch it that you are kind of just like looking at it without zooming in at all and then when you're re-watching it on each rewatch, you start to pick up on more and more details you kind of have a maybe you're not as overwhelmed so you're able to hone in on a little more detail here and there and whatnot that it really does peel back those layers, like you said, and make it a much richer film with, if anything, you know, the older the film gets and the more frequently with which I revisit it, I just get a so much more appreciation for it and, you know, kind of floored by that level of detail and the amount of techniques that are in this, you know, of course, it's got fantastic practical effects, which we'll get into, but also, like you had said, the fact that he goes from practical effects to stop motion to, you know, speeding up the camera what seems like a hundred times faster than what it should be. And the sense of style in which he's able to take a lot of that like industrial metal music, I guess for lack of a better phrase, and incorporate that into a way that it's not just, it's not kind of just like fancy dressing on top of a scene or the backdrop of a scene. Like it feels like it's literally a part of, it might as well be a character, I think, in the Mm -hmm. way in which the music works so phenomenally in tandem with the visuals, with the sensibilities of like the characters and all of these different things and capturing the essence and the mood of this movie in a way that it really does, you know, transcend the time period in which it was released in. Um, It's a film also, you know, for being, I believe it was uh, 1989. It's the type of movie that it feels so much older than it actually is. 
but mm-hmm. the techniques themselves feel far more modern, um, which is something that always catches me off guard whenever I go back and watch it because I'm like, this is so ahead of its time. And yet you think back to like, you know, obviously the 80s and how expansive the horror and especially like body horror was in that period of time. And yet, while not to say like it surpasses in terms of practical effects or anything like that, that's not really a conversation I would have, but it's the type of thing that the film itself demonstrates so many different types of filmmaking techniques and styles that it feels like a film that is decades ahead of itself almost for the time period it was released in, which, you know, again, every time I rewatch the movie, I pick up on something new and it's the type of film that you're like, how is this guy so, he feels like he's so ahead of the curve in so many different regards that you kind of just like, my jaw drops every time I revisit it. Yeah, it's, uh, it is an experience. (laughs) But I mean, taking it back for a sec from Mm -hmm. Tetsuo to body horror, the subgenre in general, I mean, it's fair to say that obviously you're a fan of body horror, much like I am. Um, So for you though, like what is the strength of that subgenre that eclipses other subgenres of horror for you? I guess, I mean, I don't know if it's my favorite subgenre, but I definitely have, I have like a weird personal connection to it in that like I haven't experienced much in the way of like my body betraying me, I guess. (laughs) Um, But like, from a personal standpoint, like growing up, my uh, my mom had cancer, and it was a very um, like outwardly defined cancer. I guess it was a skin cancer that um, kind of like transformed my my mom from the outside. Um, and I watched it happen over the course of like about seven years. Um, so. There's so much, um, there's so much that happens to you from like a psychological standpoint as your body that you're, you're used to being able to control and you're used to certain looking a certain way and, and, and you take for granted, um, every day. There's so much that that happens to you inwardly as those things that you used to control, um, begin to betray you. Um, so when I got older like having an eyewitness kind of a, you know seat to that unfortunately when i got older and saw started seeing body horror films for the first time specifically the cronenberg's uh, the fly was the first one i can think of that was really kind of in that subgenre i felt like an immediate connection to it um and it made me think of like i i feel like there there's a a line between like good body horror and bad body horror Good body horror gets what's legitimately terrifying about that um, loss of self. And bad body horror is just like, isn't this gross? This person's, you know, you know, their fingernails are falling out or some shit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So I forget where I was going with that, but... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, that that's the thing, right, is that my first experience of body horror, I was very fortunate, was like the thing, right? I, I was just watching it on VH, like a VHS rip from when it was replaying on sci-fi or something back in the 90s. And, you know, when you're that young and you don't have a lot of life experience or, you know, there are certain concepts or thematics of these films that go over your head, obviously, being a, 
a dumb six-year-old or nine-year-old like I was when I first saw it and didn't know anything about it other than like, oh, this I'm confused because this is unlike anything I've seen before. This is gross. This is scary. Those very reactionary type of elements, which are still elements of body horror to this day that I love and cherish, you know, when they're done right. Like you had said, there's obviously like everything. There's quality examples and then there's examples of it where they just want to rub in your face like, look how disgusting we can make this, which, yeah, you know, there are some movies that do that and have that attitude and you're like, yeah, man, that looked pretty fucking gross and that stood out. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it's not something that I go back and rewatch multiple times a year or that I think about a few days or a few weeks after I watch it initially. But the quality of body horror that I think makes it, you know, without being too definite in this, it's like, that's one of my favorite subgenres of horror is body horror. And the elements that around a majority of like the quality body horror films that I couldn't appreciate till I was older was that generally they are being reflective of what is going on internally with the characters, not just, of course, their bodies changing or betraying them, but something that they internally are dealing with that has nothing to do with the horrific changes their body might make. Um, I think, you know, The Fly is a great example of that in that at its core, and I've talked about this with my buddy um, Devon Taylor, who does uh, the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club podcast, which is a great podcast that uh, I've been on. He's been on mine and whatnot. But he introduced me to this film in that, or a new way to view this film as like, this is the most romantic body horror film ever made because of looking at characters' relationships, where they are, the general course of relationships, right? You kind of meet somebody, you weren't expecting to meet somebody, whether it be a work thing or just out and about, you fall in love, you have this great connection. And then what happens when that connection just kind of either ends or you start to drift apart? And that film is such a masterful example. And it's not a surprise that like Cronenberg has relationships being at the core of a lot of his movies. And he seems to draw from a lot of life experiences and putting that into his films. But it's the type of thing where you're able to take real world human emotions that are more, more likely than not are relatable to a majority of people and then apply, you know, the horrific monster moments that we all love so much as being genre fans. But there's a real emotion tied to that or there is a plausible, you know, the best examples are the ones with characters that are not only believable, but their scenarios of character to character relationships are plausible. Yeah. Whereas something like The Fly or even The Thing, you know, you've got all of these guys and whenever I rewatch that movie, all I can think about is what, where did these guys go in their life or what avenues did they take in their life to end up in this Arctic research facility when a number of them don't give a fuck about science, it's not their background. Like how did Mac end up piloting helicopters in Antarctica or how do you end up being the culinary chef of an Antarctic research base in the middle of nowhere. Like, yeah. those are the types of things that I think make those characters super interesting. And what makes you want to abandon society. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it makes me, when I go back and watch The Thing, I love that movie so much. Like, obviously, I love that movie so much, but it's the type of thing where I start thinking about, okay, these are characters that I like based on the experiences that I've had with them in this movie. But what did they do in their past life to end up here? What, what yeah. were they escaping from something? Was it escaping from a situation that they caused? Was it a situation they had no say in and it forced them to leave society or want to ban? I don't know. Those are the types of things that yeah. I think the best body horror movies can make you think of in that. Yeah, there's going to be lots of gross and gory moments that make you kind of like, your skin crawl or make you turn away. But at the end of the day, 
the people portion of that has to be front and center. And, you know, that's a quality of uh, Tetsuo that I think stands out, especially for the time period. Like I had forgotten just how much taboo subject matter this movie tackles and like its relationship with sex, its relationship with, you know, the ways in which people view their roles in society and the ways in which people come together and then what bonds them or what sends them apart from one another. And it's a film that is, you know, as much as uh, it is grotesque in the best ways imaginable, it's a film though that I think it grounds its all that insanity in people in a way that I yeah. couldn't appreciate, you know, the first two times I saw it. Well, I think too that some of the best body horror speaks to um, existentialism and kind of the nature of how delicate life is and how easily you're like when your internal balance is knocked askew, how quickly things can go downhill. Um, I think that's something that we see in Tetsuo as well. Um, as after, um, salary man, um, and his girlfriend like hit, uh, the metal fetishist with the, their car and they're infected by this, you know, this metal curse or whatever fuck it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> like his whole life spirals out of, out of control so quickly. Um, I guess, do you want to, do you want to get into that or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's the type of thing where this film tackles again, like characters and people in a way that is grounded and yet it puts them into these unimaginable situations, right? You have mm -hmm. this, the, you know, the salary man and his girlfriend, and then the very real world situation of like a hit and run and somebody decides, well, for whatever reason, whether it's a point of privilege or not, they decide, well, I'm not going to answer the consequences of my actions, right? And that sends them spiraling. But, you know, Sukamoto does such a great job of unnerving before that even happens, right? He presents this this fantastical hell where there's this, you know, just that phrase metal fetishist. Every time I say that, I'm just like, I know what it means, but what the hell does that mean? That's such a crazy, just a phrase and a persona for somebody to have that, it is a horror that you would never think of. And and yet it is rooted in this real world portrayal of people in that, you know, the first time you watch it, you're like, this guy's got a fetish for metal. He's shoving metal into his body and he's getting <laughs> met, rot, rotting flesh and maggots in his skin from the metal. And he's running it through his teeth and all this like very skin crawling, disturbing uh, imagery. And then it was only on this rewatch that I realized that, okay, it's completely fantastical. It's completely ridiculous, but it's rooted in a real world trauma. I mean, this guy being having a fetish for metal derives from a trauma that he endured, which was getting beat. I think it was supposed to be he was beaten by his father with a piece of metal rebar, which is that yeah. flashback that's at the end of the movie. When I first saw this movie, I had zero idea what the point of that scene was. I Again, this comes back to whether you know it's my fault or it's a lack of cohesive storytelling, right? That kind of just like, comes out of nowhere at the end of the movie that you're not really sure initially what that has to do with anything. It's yeah, it's, it's kind of a, and, and it's tied to this. Um, Cause I noticed that with this, this rewatch as well. And, and it's, there's this, it's tied to this kind of um, not like almost this heartbreaking kind of feeling that you feel for the, the fetishist where it's, he's got this obsession with metal. Um, he's obviously got, 
trauma from his past that's tied to to the material but you also notice um throughout those shots which uh, did you get vibes of i got vibes of the opening kind of like the introduction to nightmare on elm street where um Kruger's making his claw i got kind of vibes to that in that 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 introductory scene and i also got hellraiser vibes i think maybe because it, it condenses that theme of obsession so so well and so quickly um but in that montage, you see um, all these pictures of these sprinters that he's had, that he's, um, you know, kind of like pasted to his walls and stuff, which filled so his fetish den with. Well, and it feels like, I don't know, like he's trying to inject himself with some sort of horsepower. He's trying to like, he's trying to improve himself um, by taking this, uh, I don't know this, you know this these metal rods that he's beaten with, and he, he's literally trying to push them into his legs, like either to make himself better, to make himself stronger, um, maybe so that he feels stronger, so that he can deal with what he was, um, you know, the the pain that he has from his childhood, or he's trying to make himself better or better to appease his fathers. Um, it's deeply upsetting. <laughs> no, it is. A hundred percent. And that's why I think that this is a movie that once you get past how oppressive it is and how much of a sensory overload it is, at the end of the day, you know, for my qualms with maybe him not being the most succinct storyteller at times in terms of what he's trying to convey, he's able to convey a great deal through visuals, right? It mm. it becomes a problem for me it's kind of when he is trying to quite literally have characters say something or lending the narrative to, or leading the narrative in a certain direction. But he's able to say a great deal with just the environments that scenes are set in. And, you know, sometimes it's a very limited amount of actions, but I feel like everything, every action of a character feels very personable in a way that you're deriving something through their action about them that he, at the end of the day, doesn't necessarily have to say. Um, and I think that that is the, I think the opening moment of the show, of the movie is what speaks so strongly to his ability to make a body horror film that at its core, it's about people that are either traumatized by their own actions or by the actions of others that they were powerless to prevent, which for me is always the core of the best body horror films uh, mm. in many ways in that, you know, whether it be somebody's own actions or the hands of others, something happened that has had a fundamental almost rewrite of the way in which their perception of reality or their experiences amongst reality, their reality have been forever changed and influenced. And, you know, this is the most horrific personification of that. Um, it also helps that, you know, there's some fantastic uh, practical effects and his not really turning a blind eye to, you know, dabbling in, again, I keep coming back to it, like a lot of taboo subject matter that, furthermore sort of makes it uncomfortable, but it all is complementing itself in the best ways possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, now I'm, I'm, <laughs> this is the clearest I've thought about the movie um, <laughs> in the brief time that I've brief. I've seen it three times a uh, time that I've, I've spent with it, but now I'm starting to think this is just a movie about obsession, man. Yeah. That's a, this, that, that's, a, that's a, maybe that's obvious to the audience, but like, um, when the kind of repressed salary man guy, um, you know, he, he hits the metal fetishist with the, with his car and it's almost like 
that um, obsession from him is transferred to, or I guess, yeah, transferred to, I keep calling him Salary Man. I'm pretty sure that's what his, his name is. Yeah, the, that, uh, that's what he's known as in like the IMD page or whatever, yeah. but they never say his name, but he is known as the Salary Man who is- Well, I think that's a, a term in Japan for like your everyday like yeah. office drone. Um, he's very repressed. Um straight laced on the outside it's interesting that you know he's he's got this this girlfriend who it seems like almost like the complete opposite of him or partner i don't know if they're you know official or anything but um (laughs) (laughs) well i think they're they're officially the extent that they're going to kill somebody and then try to hide their body and then have sex in the woods yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. i think that that is a Another facet of this film that, you know, I wasn't able to appreciate or even grasp the first two times I saw it in that there is a great, he goes to great pain, Tsukamoto, to have commentary in this movie as, you know, outlandish and fucked up as it is. Like he is saying something. And I think that that is what separates this from some of the other body horror movies that we've both seen that, you know, while they, again, there might be merits to the practical effects or the gruesome factor and whatnot, but they're not really saying anything past that, which, you know, there's arguments for both sides of that. But at the end of the day, like this is a movie that it feels like it's a commentary. It's a disturbing commentary and a disturbing personification of the way I'm sure Tsukamoto feels about society and whatnot. But it feels like it is a cultural commentary, right? Because you have this guy that this metal fetishist who is quite literally mutilating his own body. But at the end of the day, is he hurting anybody other than himself? In that opening moment, we don't know anything about him. We don't know what he's done previously, but what we're shown, the only thing that he's inflicting pain against is himself versus the salary man that is supposed to be, you know, again, not to say I know a great deal about this culture and whatnot, but like is supposed to be the portrayal of the everyman, whereas the fetishist is supposed to be this guy that's like, he's a gutter guy, basically, or a street urchin. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the salary man is the one that has killed someone and that has inflicted pain against someone and is trying to cover it up. And I think that that is an interesting contrast of these people. One is quite literally like demified, uh, demified by society. And yet this person that is the salary man that's supposed to be, you know, whether it be middle class or higher than that is supposed to be somebody that you should aspire to be is the one that is truly the actual like obsessive, to a detriment to themselves and those around them. Well, and it's interesting too, that the moment, um, salary man gets a little bit of power, i.e. his giant drill penis. Um, (laughs) what, what does he immediately do with it? He kills his girlfriend with it. Um, I can't believe it's taken us 35 minutes to mention the drill dick. (laughs) It's funny. I I was talking to, uh, I told a buddy of mine, uh, I don't know if he's listening. Hey, dusty. Um, I was like, hey, yeah, I'm going on my buddy's uh, podcast to talk about Tetsuo, and he's a big Tetsuo fan. And he's like, oh, nice. How are you going to talk about the drill penis? <laughs> I was like, you know, I don't. I'm. I think I'm just going to let it come up orga- organically. There you go. See, uh, see how we get there, and then sure enough, here we are. And uh, yep, <laughs> I've completely lost my point. Um, <laughs> no, I think that you know as. As wild as that scene is, right? Because, you know, 
for those who haven't seen it, which I'm surprised you made it this far in the podcast without having having watched Tetsuo, because you're like, what the fuck are they talking about? So basically, after killing the metal fetishist, this guy and his girlfriend, you know, they hit him with the car, they kill him, they hide his body, they bury his body, they have sex in the woods. After that, they get off on the fact that, oh, we just got away with this naughty thing. They essentially become victims of the curse of the uh, metal man, or the iron man, rather. In that their own bodies then begin to shift into these metal amalgamations of meat and mutilation and all of these things. So they start sprouting metal appendages. They start having chunks of metal coming out of their ankles, out of their arms, out of their faces. Well, and it's interesting because it's it's like it first starts with him and then it's only after he's, well, he essentially rapes her and kills her that when she when she comes back, it's like now she's transformed as well. It's he's planted, I hate saying, the, the seed of this metal demon um, into her and, and she's reborn because of it. Um, Oh my God. There's so much. I'm just looking at my notes now. There's also a, I have something in all caps fork biting. Oh Jesus. (laughs) I've never seen a movie as, as uncomfortable as that drill penis scene was. um, I've never seen a movie capture so perfectly what, someone biting on a fork can do to your nervous system. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It almost deserved an Oscar for best. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the type of thing too, where, you know, uh, Sugimoto's ability to have those very disturbing, but very fantastical scenes and moments like that. Right. I mean, there's that scene where obviously his drill penis and then he kills her with it. And then also the scene where, you know, she becomes infected and pipes and things start coming out of her. And then either it does happen or it's a dream that he has where she has a she sprouts a pipe and then like inserts it into him, which is a whole nother whole nother level of body oh, horror that yeah, we're not prepared for. That's even that's the dream he's having before the whole like right before he even starts sprouting shit out. Like this oh, is just right. like a normal day in his head. Yeah. I can't tell. <laughs> well, that's like the dreamlike sensibility that this movie has with handling that in a way, you know, when I first saw it, I had a, a a fever myself. So it really like synced up in terms of like trying to try to parse what is happening, what's reality, what is not. But that is a great quality of a filmmaker. I think in that, again, even if you can't decipher whether something that's happening is literally happening in the film, or if it is a figment of an imagination or a nightmare, uh, as it were, it's still the type of thing that it makes you feel a certain type of way. And that is the quality of this film that I think, even if you don't necessarily understand what's happening, if anything, it's more powerful to have imagery make you feel a type of way rather than necessarily having an understanding behind it, I find. Um, But yeah, I think that, again, like the relationship and the commentary, you know, it kind of goes both ways. The relationship between men and women with sex that he tackles in this movie and then the viewpoints of society and his commentary on that, it just, it is furthermore this horrific personification or exemplification of just his ability to pair horror with something more so to say, which I think, you know, it has incredibly hellish results here. I have a weird question. Um, Do you think like talking about um, the nightmarish qualities of this, do you think that the fetishist and salary man are the same person? Is this like, I I almost wonder if, because at the end they do battle um, and I like, I almost wonder if are these 
two sides of the same person kind of battling out for supremacy. Um, because, like, that final shot where, they're, like, after Salaryman kind of sucks him into himself, there's also, like, some, there's <laughs> some definitely homoerotic imagery happening there. Like, if, if it's not the same person, then, like... I get. I guess they they are now one, um, <laughs> um, right. but there's that that shot of like the fetishist's face. I think it's the fe- who actually won that fight. I keep. I can. I can never tell. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I'm gonna need another. There's revisit so much gunk to, uh... on their faces. Like it's hard to tell. I assumed it was the repressed guy finally letting go of all of his. Um, you know, all of his emotions and, and stuff he's been pushing down, and that's how he, like, over, over, um, uh, overpowers this dark side that's trying to take control. I guess, so yes, he embraces it. Now I'm just rambling. I feel like, <laughs> I feel as disjointed as. No, this is all, I, well, this is the thing is that it's not rambling because it's a, it's trying to parse something that I think it has multiple interpretations in various you know facets of what we've been talking about but it's a movie that i think is open to a lot of interpretations on purpose again whether that be purposefully done on uh Tsukamoto's part or you know it is the more lackadaisical or unseasoned ability to convey one definite solution or or plot device as it were but i think that it could either be you know your interpretation I think mine was a little more in line of like the metal fetishist, despite how society views both sides of the coin of character or protagonists in this film, whether it be the metal fetishist or the salary man, is that the salary man, it seems the only thing that is separating him from this guy that is more than likely viewed as being a detriment to society is that one probably had a more, I don't know if I want to say nurturing, but like an upbringing that allowed him and privilege that allowed him to become something in society that is viewed with a modicum of respect. But then at the end of the day, like his sensibilities of who he is and what his true passions and obsessions are, are not all that far removed from the metal fetishist himself. Right. If anything, again, it comes back to the idea that who is inflicted pain amongst the other. Well, it was Mm. the salary man, right? The metal fetishist was only inflicting pain amongst them against himself. He wasn't doing anything to other people until he was quite literally killed. Um, And I think at the same time, though, it could be viewed as that the fetishist is just basically a expression of what the salary man himself is repressing. Um, And I think that that is very much in line with like my view of the movie and that it's being a commentary on class structure and that society and how people and, you know, even in our, you know, our own society, right over here in North America, the idea that. We attribute certain qualities to people based on the station or the status that they have without well, actually knowing we who don't he, do that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do exactly that same thing where we think that somehow people with money are more morally superior to uh, to people who don't have a lot of money and then it turns out they're just like salary man and they're actually secretly deprived and you know yeah, or not deprived, uh, depraved and yeah, no, we don't do that. No, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely not. I uh, <laughs> Any notion that we do is blasphemy. But I think that the film itself, you know, it works in that way that so much of the subject matter it deals in and a lot of the sort of 
visuals and how intoxicating they can be and how horrific they can be, it opens up that conversation and that interpretation in a way that I think really allows us to be a perfect example of body horror in that it is very upfront with like the visuals and how it wants to shock you with those. But underneath the surface and being multi-layered, like you had said, it is the type of film though that people can get multiple meanings and multiple or they can make their own inferences from what they're shown, which Mm. I think the essence of body horror in and of itself, you know, coming back to the individual, coming back to the experiences and whatnot, and having that extra layer of meaning behind certain things and what certain visual, you know, it always ends up being like, well, how much of that's anecdotal or how much of that is just drawing from one's own personal experiences or whether it be film or life experiences and ends up being the type of thing that, people can derive greater meaning from something that a director did not even themselves mean to be a focal point or be a talking Mm. point. And I think that that's one of the greatest strengths of the subgenre in and of itself. And, you know, it helps that uh, Tsukamoto made this wild, you know, psychosexual body horror, practical effects nightmare that, I mean, I'm still blown away by the practical effects, like, and the techniques behind a lot of those, again, like, there's a certain mood that's evoked with it being shot in black and white, but the intricacies of the practical effects and the bits of metal that protrude from both, you know, the man, the salary man and his girlfriend, when they turn into these metallic monsters and how the film evolves from that, you know, body horror to then almost like metallic pandemic horror. Right. Because when you start having what's essentially like a super a super villain beat him up at the very end of the movie. These two metallic <laughs> monstrosities going at it. You have this almost pandemic angle where they're like, we want to take over the world and see metal spread across the world. And it takes on almost a whole new meaning or just a whole new level of obsession, I think, which is the probably the most disturbing part of the movie for me, where you have the salary man and his obsession and how it leads down this rabbit hole of depravity and horror and yet he takes it another step further or his antagonist takes it another step forward where now we have to involve the whole world. The whole world has to be engulfed with our obsession or our love with mutilation and metal. I love that moment so much, that big reveal at the end where it's like that just mound of metal and he's like sticking out of the top, like half his torso and he's holding like an Uzi for some reason. And um, you see the fetishist's face is kind of just sticking out of the blob and he just says something along the lines of like, oh yeah, this is great. I love this. This is wonderful. Um, I also, side note, like, and this is one of the best things about like indie filmmaking is like kind of like the, the gorilla filmmaking techniques that are used. Like that movie must have been... (laughs) That 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 scene must have been shot in like a residential area by yeah. the looks of it. And can you imagine you're just looking out your window in the morning and you're just seeing this this shit is happening and you're just like, oh my god. What is he doing now? Well, yeah. apparently like I what research I did, it seems that a lot of the cat or a lot of the crew rather, uh, abandoned the production because it was just so grueling and so over the top. And I suppose, you know, with his passion probably came some, a, a, a layer of, or a, a level of intensity that not everybody could, you know, reciprocate probably just based off of like his singular vision yeah. for what this has to be and uncompromising in that regard. Um, 
But just coming back to the fact that like it was so indicative of Indian guerrilla filmmaking in the idea again, though, that there are so many layers to the different stylistic techniques that he's using here to the degree that I remember the first time I watched it. And, you know, it was probably a combination of the film and also like the fever was that <laughs> this is a movie that like almost I'm not somebody that gets like nauseous, really, but the movie is so oppressive that I almost like I physically feel drained or nauseous almost after yeah. I finish watching the movie because it jumps between, you know, it's probably like the psychology of movies. Once you get any certain length into a movie, whether it be like half an hour or something like that, I feel like you don't know what's coming necessarily, but you your brain is tuned to the stylistic elements that the film will be portrayed in or that will be utilized to tell this story. But with this movie, it's, it's so really haphazardly. To... <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude, it's so haphazardly r- jumps between stop motion or super sped up to the degree that you're like, whoa, now we're going a hundred times speed for these very simple scenes that are just like him walking down an alley or seeing how the metal starts to take over the neighborhood and whatnot. It is I think a the camera uh, yeah. is still for maybe five minutes of the entire yeah. runtime. <laughs> the most uh the the most sort of like stilled shot is when his he's killing his girlfriend with his big metal penis, I think. Oh boy. <laughs> That thing. And then he ends up, I mean, I guess technically that's how he subdues uh, the fetishist as well. This is nice true. Little, nice little circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what his end goal is, but he's going to he's gonna do some stabbing with his unit. He's just thinking of that. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. also some wild dialogue to go along with, you know, how wild oh. the visuals are in this movie one of my favorite it's completely lewd and i completely do not co-sign it but i have to get a <laughs> chuckle out of when he says you want to taste you want to what is it you want to taste of my sewage pipe which is one of the most ridiculous oh. lines ever uttered in a movie no. and again wholeheartedly do not co-sign utter that utterance at all but it is so abrasively lewd and so out of left field that i can't not you know not respect it, but it, it catches me off guard every time, no matter how many times I watch it. Yeah, there's a great line. I took a screenshot of it. It's uh, after, um, it's when the fetishist, like, who I guess is still alive, dolls himself up and they meet for the first time after he the um, salary man is completely transformed and he gets right in his face um, <laughs> and he says, fantastic, you didn't die. And it just tickled me. It just tickled me. <laughs> Well, that's the thing also that, uh, yeah, in between a lot of, you know, the elements that we've talked about and how great the body horror elements are, how he dabbles in this taboo subject matter makes it far more palatable almost, which sounds funny to say, considering, again, how abrasive of a film it is. At the end of the day, though, you get the semblance of what characters are trying to convey to one another, whether it be the salary man and his girlfriend, right? I mean, even after he kills her or uh, she climbs on his metal unit and gets drilled to death, like he makes a shrine out of her body, which, you know, as fucked up and demented as it is, you don't do that for somebody that's an afterthought, right? This is somebody that, you know, while it might be very lewd and might be very disturbing, like, you can still sense somewhat of an emotion between those two characters or a connection between those characters. Likewise, when he, the salary man fully gets possessed by the metal fetishist curse and completely transforms, you get that moment where the TV turns on and he gets reached out to by the metal fetishist 
and whatnot. And like all of a sudden there's a new facet to their relationship. And if there wasn't, the metal fetishist would either just kill him or he would completely ignore him. But there's a bond there at least. And in that bond, there's some semblance of emotional connection that had it been devoid of that, I think. If the movie had com- been completely devoid of any emotion, I find it would have been even more confusing, right? Because even if you don't understand the logic behind certain things, you still understand the emotion or you understand maybe the inklings of emotion that can be tied to certain elements. I kind of love that um, because his girlfriend seems like she's a very, like she's kind of um, anti-tradition, I guess. Like Mm. she's not prim or proper. She kind of seems to be like leading this relationship and, and um, like is kind of like the dominant force in it. And I love that. Like, so after he ends up like murdering her, he essentially try he he built he builds this shrine out of her body and kind of like um what's the word i'm thinking of he um kind of tries to deify her but it takes like in a in, in a weird way he's like taking away her agency a bit um like pushing her back into that traditional role of like the you know the, this is like the the woman that i'm supposed to worship and and that stuff and and she she comes alive at that moment to be like, no, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> you murdering piece of shit. I'm going to try and stab you to death now. Right. Um, it, it's it's this weird... It re- reminded me almost of, uh, you know, like Laurie using, uh, uh, in the first Halloween, using um, Michael's own knife on oh, him. Yeah. Yep. Um, obviously, she didn't use the, the drill penis, but... Uh, <laughs> Still a phallic killing John, object. <laughs> as much a visionary as John Carpenter was, uh, the drill penis was not in his uh, his, his tool making uh, a toolbox of filmmaking. But you know that's a really great point that you made in that this film again. Furthermore, like Sugimoto having something to say with as evocative as the imagery is, you know it could be this thing where he portrays these male characters as being very domineering of women and like wanting to push them back into their role, their perceived roles in society and traditional roles in society. But at the end of the day, like he has a great forward thinking sensibility that, you know, all of the women that should be perceived as maybe victims or being victims of, you know, um, male, what's, what's the word? Male oppression for lack of a better Mm -hmm. word. Um, It would be the type of thing though, that the women in these films quite literally like, kick the shit out of this guy, the salary man in two different instances, right? Whether it be mm-hmm. his own girlfriend who kind of uh, rebukes his attempts to put her into that role or to make her vilify her as just an object uh, or rather put her into the role of being this just sexual object in that, you know, he kills her and then she beats the fuck out of him. But also in the train station, right? Where he is this, the first woman that he encounters that kind of gets infected with, the metal fetishist curse, she beats the fuck out of him. Like he gets his mm. ass whooped. He is very much the victim. And it's that role reversal that it really did. And not that the film's narrative dabbles in that with that woman in the train station, but it feels like a, uh, a scene out of like a rape revenge film, right? Where the woman gets the upper hand on her male aggressor um, mm. in a way that I thought was indicative of a filmmaker that again is, very cognizant of the decisions he's making and the portrayals of male char- male and female characters and their roles within society in a way that feels ahead of the curve. Again, not to say that, you know, you hadn't had 
elements of that or like that sort of angle in film before. But it just, again, there are so many facets of filmmaking in Tetsuo that feel ahead of the curve or feel more cognizant of what he is setting out to do that it just catches me off guard because, you know, with body horror in and of itself, we tend to get so hung up on like how shocking something is or how gory something is. And yet underneath the surface, there's so much well-developed, you know, thought process behind characters or thematics and what they're trying, what a director or writer is trying to say that gives it a layer of depth or a layer of, you know, commentary that I think so many people at a surface level glance will completely miss or just kind of like dismiss as being, you know, it's just a facet of the story or whatever. When in reality, that director like clearly is drawing from their own thoughts or experiences in a way that feels more meaningful throughout the vessel of horror. Mm. I wondered too, if, um, cause that actress who played the girlfriend, um, uh, Kei Fujiwara, she also is credited as, uh, she did costume design and also is like co-credited for cinematography. Um, so I'm, I wonder if maybe, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how to find this out, but you know, I, I wonder if she had any influence with her character's, uh, her character's arc. I know she's not credited with uh, the writing at all, but it'd be interesting to to see. Yeah. I think it's the type of movie too, where you get the sense of the gorilla nature of the movie, you know, from every instant, whether or not, you know, you're told or you've researched it and found that out, but it's the type of thing where the film feels so indicative of that, that it feel very much feels like a collaborative effort at almost every turn um, in a way that, it really does, and you know, again, like I haven't seen the sequels, but I definitely want to check them out to see if, in not to be sort of like black and white comparison of like, oh, is this better than the original or is this sequel better than the other one? But just to see if that run and gun sensibility of the original is carried over and if that hinders or helps the next stage of Tetsuo and that facet of storytelling or that sort of very niche industrial body horror metal avenue of storytelling the second one i've only seen the second one and it's it's good it feels almost like um a little bit how like when sam raimi made evil dead and then essentially remade evil dead with evil dead 2 um because it feels it's it's a very similar story it actually has some of the same cast and stuff although they're technically playing different characters but it it can feel at times like this is just a continuation of the first movie but it's a little more polished it's in color um but it has um a lot of the same story beats i i think i prefer the first tetsuo because it's it's just got that manic energy um, kind of pulsating through every single second of it. And and if I remember correctly, I think um, Body Hammer is is uh, 90 minutes, so it's it's stretched out a little longer. Um, but it's it's um, it breathes a little bit more um, in certain spots. Um, there are some absolutely nutty moments in it, and it still has that same feeling at the end where it becomes this nightmarish like superhero uh beat em up world destroying apocalyptic battle um, <laughs> um it's funny that we haven't had this whole time we haven't talked about um i guess like technology and its relationship to um the human body specifically like something i think that's really kind of interesting 
about this movie is how it relates to our use of, um, well, like our cell phones, for instance, or just how much computers, cell phones, social media, all these, all these um, synthetic things have become like very uh, closely tied to our everyday experiences and are kind of replacing um, certain impulses and things that, um, you know, existed before. Do you know what I mean? To say yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of like um, I'm, I'm reading right now uh, uh, Kira Kurosawa's autobiography. And, and at one point he talks about when he was a little boy and, and growing up in the village that he grew up in and all the these beautiful um, sounds that he'd hear um that like stuck stick in his memory and there are all these sounds that were organically made like it was you know the sound of of their like their wooden sandals on on uh you know like on the bricks and the sound of wind chimes and the bell that like a vendor would use on their their cart and stuff and and he talked about how like so many of those sounds have died out and have been replaced at least in by that point in the seventies when he wrote it by these electronic sounds and the synthetic sounds and these completely organic, um, sensations have been kind of been replaced by things that are synthetic. Um, and I feel like that's definitely something that's kind of happening in this as well. Um, it's maybe it's a little too easy of a, of a line to draw between like, you know, when do we stop, becoming like what when do you stop becoming when you when do you be when are you more machine than you are human as you adopt these different synthetic things into your into your lifestyle um when does that overpower your humanity i guess i don't know how much of a stretch it is but just like thinking about the way in which they the salaryman is kills the metal fetishist right would he ever kill him in the street if he was not behind the wheel of a car right it's the same thing that, like, quite literally, the weapon of choice is a car, and it it was, by all accounts, portrayed as being an accident. But it is the idea that, like, our relationship with technology, whether it be, you know, uh, the ways in which we communicate with one another or the way that we just traverse our environments, like, there is something lost in that that is moving away from the traditional view of society, or it's indicative, maybe, rather, of evolutions in society and how with that and with the convenience of whether in this case be transportation and whatnot, like there are inherent risks of that. And when you put somebody behind the wheel like that, that it can have the tendency to like facilitate the worst parts of them maybe. And that might be a stretch mm. and kind of just trying to connect the dots no, between your, your very succinct point uh, to my rambling, but it's no, no, no. I think like, that's, it's an extension. It's kind yeah. of the car is, is the car is kind of like the drill penis. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, yeah. it's, it's extension of this, this negative impulse that he has. Cause we don't even know for all we know, we meant to hit him. They might've been the way I, I just find it so interesting that they, they, they kill this man and then they dispose of the body and then they fuck in the woods and clearly got off on what they just did. And I, I can't tell if that is a spur of the moment thing or if this is something that has happened before with them, maybe. They also um, fuck before they get rid of the body, right? Because we get that very like voyeuristic uh, yeah. flashback of the body in the trunk of the car watching them fuck in the woods and so it's like they couldn't even they couldn't even bury the body before they had to like go bang one out basically. 
And I wonder, too, it's interesting that he almost seems like he's been pushed up against that tree by by his girlfriend, and she is, like, very much into it, and he's just kind of like, uh, like, <laughs> you, uh, audio podcast so no right. one can see me, like, cringing away. <laughs> they got the point from the from the audio cue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think there's just so much to unpack, but it's... Uh, I, that's the thing, too, like, no matter how long you talk about the movie, it's so open to interpretation that, you know, you would hope that people listening have seen the movie and they have a little more context. But at the same time, even if they have watched it, you know, not to not to say like we're these geniuses about film, but it's like there's chances are that we've discussed something that somebody themselves did not interpret just because of how many different avenues of interpretation so many of the scenes offer up, right? I mean, yeah. it is a film that... I think it's a positive of the film that's as short as it is. And I'm not apprehensive just because I'm obviously still going to go and watch the second and third one. But the idea that you would stretch this concept out and knowing now that like the second one is very much along the lines of like Evil Dead 2, where it's like more budget, more confidence, more familiarity with the filmmaking process. And then choosing to stretch that out, I'm very interested to see like how much of that vagueness or how much of the sort of leaving it up to the audience's interpretation is still there and how much yeah. of that is reeled back in favor of more straightforward horrors as it were um, I'm somebody that you know I appreciate both very straightforward and then open to interpretation narratives or visuals and images and things like that so I think it'll be interesting to see his evolution as a filmmaker from one to two and then you know inevitably to three and it's inspired me to go and watch his other filmography. Actually, I'm kind of. I was on Amazon earlier looking for the. Uh, I believe it's an Arrow box set. Oh, that Arrow box set did. looks beautiful. Um, I think they have. Uh, I can't remember how many of the movies they have on Arrow's streaming uh, platform, which is like mwah, Chef's Kiss. There's just too many good streaming platforms now, but like I thought, Arrow, I think is like to me if you're if you're really into. Um, weird ass <laughs> at niche cinema it's kind of like the criterion collection of 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 that like i i, I think i feel like shutter shutter's great but it's kind of entered the netflix of horror territory whereas um arrow is kind of the like criterion channel mm. version of of that well you, all... could, you just you just sold me and i'm sure numerous of my listeners on arrow i definitely need to check that out because that's one that When they announced that, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, it's another streaming service. I already have 19 of those. Do I need another one? But every single time either you or somebody else I follow on Twitter goes off and shares something they're watching through that platform or just being like, hey, this popped up. I'm like, why the hell am I not subscribed to that? Because it sounds like there's so many gems that otherwise I'd have to find like bootleg copies on YouTube or something to watch. Oh, it's great, man. And and something I really find, this is a side tangent, but... um, I really love the fact that these uh, streaming services are making um, these boutique releases more accessible to people who can't like afford the hundreds of dollars. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, the I was thinking about how um, on the Arrow platform they have the um, the first volume of the the Shaw Brothers box set that they released. Oh so, yeah. 
Yeah, so, and and obviously there's not, you know, it doesn't have all the, necessarily, like, all the special features and stuff that would come with the, the box set itself, but it has the movies. So for anyone who really wanted to see them but can't afford the hundreds of dollars for the box set, like, this is a great alternative. And it's kind of this, it makes, um, these, these, these platforms make horror and and film in general more accessible to people because i find that's something that's something i find in horror in general that it's kind of got there's a little bit of a a, like a and i'm saying this as someone who loves to collect there's kind of like a capitalism problem that we see in in horror nowadays where it's just like if you don't have the money if it wasn't for these streaming services if you didn't have the money to kind of buy these these movies you wouldn't really be able to be in the club, you know what I mean? Like it's it'd, right. be, it'd be much more exclusive without them. So I'm really glad that they're uh, they're making these things available to everybody. You know, that's a great point. And you know, I I wrote a, I actually wrote an article about this very topic, and I can't I can't remember now. It's been so long if I actually published it or if it was one of those that just like is forever going to exist on my uh, my hard drive. But it was when um, Deadly Games or Dial Code Dial Code for yeah. Santa Claus came out on shutter right and that was such a huge deal when that came out on shutter not only because of you know it was this film that had not really been readily available in america at or for a majority of the world available right it was only on like bootleg vhs's or you know they might have done a dvd run in the early 2000s of it or something but other than that it was not available through legal means unless you could shell out a hundred dollars for the vhs or the dvd or whatever this or that and that movie coming out on shutter was such a pivotal moment in my sort of like my reappraisal of streaming services and the value that they have other than hey i like this movie now i can rewatch it i don't have to go plug in my blu-ray player or whatever because it's just (laughs) The accessibility to that and the affordability that goes with the accessibility of a streaming service, you know, no matter how much a streaming service is, ultimately, you're getting access to not only that catalog of movies that they have, but also you're funding streaming services in theory with something like Shutter or Arrow and being able to facilitate and finance and knowing that you have the fandom behind it to dig up movies such as, you know, Deadly Games, Dial, aka Dial Code for Santa and make it available to people. You know, when yeah. that movie came out on Shutter, it was the first, like, I watched it immediately, really, really enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, I should get this on Blu-ray or 4K because I enjoyed it so much. And then, you know, it's like 50 bucks, I think, or it was yeah, when it was released. Syndrome. Yeah, it was like a $50 thing. And I was like, well, that's not feasible for me. So I guess I'm just going to keep watching it on Shutter. Um, which, yeah. you know, it's the type of thing that it the accessibility portion, I think, is so crucial. And it's something that, the older I get and, you know, <laughs> looking at finances more and more, the older you get, I'm like, well, I can't justify buying one movie for 50 bucks or even, you know, yeah. sometimes 35, like it gets marked down to $35. I'm like, that's still $35 still- for one movie. So the idea though, that you can, and you know, this is not to say that the exclusivity of streaming services or the rights behind streaming services are bulletproof. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, like having that option, and it's more important to me to have a wider audience have access to something like that that is affordable. Shutter, I think at the most is like still less than ten dollars a month, right? And so yeah, and that is arrow is like five bucks, I think. Exactly. You have these boutique outlets, or maybe boutique is a better way to describe arrow at this point, because it's kind of still seems to be in its infancy a little bit while still promising. Um, but at the same time, like 
having that pricing be super affordable, like $5, I think is ridiculously affordable, you know, no matter what your situation is. I mean, (laughs) when you look at something like Netflix, where, you know, granted, I feel like at this point, one in three people you meet or one in two at this point have Netflix, the price keeps raising. And yet I don't can't remember the last thing I watched on Netflix. Whereas with Shudder, I think I'm grandfathered in because I before they had a price increase, I had had it for so long that it's still like, like you said, four or five dollars a month. And so the amount of value I get out of that and the accessibility to certain movies that otherwise I would have to buy the $45 boutique Blu-ray or 4K remasters. I mean, it's the best deal in horror for my money, at least at that point. And more so, it's just more promising that it's a viable business based on how long it's been around. And, you know, the more exclusives and the more they're producing their own content... But at the same time, it's affordable for people to get the experiences that they otherwise couldn't. And that's something that, you know, that's the drum that I've been beating a lot more. Preservation of horror games or horror movies, things like Shudder and it sounds like Arrow are so pivotal in that. And that just adds a tremendous amount of value in my mind, even if it was $10 a month. Uh, Definitely. And like in a genre that uh, and community that, you know, we're is always promoting, um, like inclusivity it's i think looking at it from an economic standpoint is 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 equally as crucial to all the other ways that we talk about that that term because um well like i i mean i'll just end up repeating myself not that like that's i I do that all the time on this podcast there are (laughs) there's no worries there (laughs) i feel like such a hypocrite too because the audience can't see this but like there's Meanwhile, behind me is like my bookshelf full of all these different um, movies that I bought and couldn't when I shouldn't have. Um, <laughs> and but like like you know like I I I love collecting and everything, but it's it's just uh, God, you know, some you can't always be doing it. And and I don't know about you, but sometimes on Twitter when like a new big box set comes out and everyone's like tweeting their pictures of like oh I got mine, got mine, got mine. And it's like you feel kind of left out. Maybe that's like the the like uh, poor kid because I grew up pretty pretty poor. Maybe that's like the you know the the poor street urchin I used to be like um, um, uh, coming out a bit during those times. But it's uh, I don't know. I just think that these these services are doing great work. Yeah, I'm just th- you know of, of course I'm blanking now, but just I'm thinking about over the last three years or something on Shudder and the amount of movies that they have made easily accessible for me has made me be able to come into the fold more with like the horror community on Twitter or whatever, because it's like, well, if you're going to talk, if like a new $200 box set comes out, I can't afford that. And I'm not going to invest in that just because of, you know, it's too expensive for me and my budget and whatnot. So I'm not going to be part Mm -hmm. of that conversation. But when a new movie drops on Shudder, whether it be an exclusive that everybody wants to talk about or if it's something that they've dug up from the archives that A, I've never heard of, and B, would even if I could, I would never mm-hmm. be able to afford, it just feels much more inclusive in the best ways possible. And it makes me thankful for services like that. Um, and, you know, it that's how I found Tetsuo. And I w- otherwise, you know, a few years ago would not have been able to watch it if it was only sequestered to, you know, some Blu-ray thing. But uh you know, I'm a, this is why I love having you on to chat. You know, you said this is our third chat, and every time I get to uh, I get to flex some different horror muscles because you and I, I think, are 
are cut from a similar horror cloth and sensibilities when it comes to, you know, horror films and, you know, horror film preservation and whatnot. But as always, my friend, I, it is I a pleasure. So, sir. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as always, it's a, uh, a pleasure having you on a chat horror. And uh, before I let you go, I'd love for you to uh, either pimp your Twitter so people can follow you and updates on your fantastic work or uh, if you wanted oh, to gosh. tease an article or two that uh, you have coming out soon. Yeah, well, I mean, if you want to follow me, I'm, uh, I think on both Instagram and Twitter, I'm uh, pbrennan87. Um, and that's all great. If you want to see pictures of, you know, things that I'm watching and pictures <laughs> of my son being cute, that's the place to go. Um, and in terms of, uh, pieces coming out, I have one coming out of, uh, the site Manor Vellum, um, in, uh, at the end of April. It's, uh, I'm not going to get into it, but it's a really like personally significant, piece that I'm really excited to share with people and uh and it's happening on a date that is uh, going to be a big celebration for me so I'm um, looking forward to that and I guess on the topic of Manor Vellum I just want to I, I just want to throw it out there that like that site is legitimately so wonderful to write for um and uh like if you're if you're a writer who is like looking for a home for your work and looking for an editor that that really you know will care about what you're doing and give you great feedback and and uh, and all that, I, I highly recommend uh, sending pitches out there. Um, you can find them on uh, on uh, Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm awful at <laughs> I'm trying to. Uh, yeah, this was this wasn't planned. This little burst of uh, patriotism in regards to Manervellum, but uh, it's a wonderful site. So. Um, yeah, throw your ideas their way. Well, without uh, knowing much about the article that uh, you'll be featuring there at the end of uh, April, I can definitely say that everything you write, you know, it speaks from a place of a love of horror, but also personal things from your life, or it just feels like all everything you produce is always something I look forward to reading because it feels very personable in a way that can sometimes be missing from horror writing. So as always, you know, I'm a, I will always champion your work and whatnot. And I, uh, I love whenever I get the chance to have you on and pick your brain about horror. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's great being on here. I'm glad this is a wonderful chat. I'm glad that we got into that little sidebar too about, <laughs> uh, you know, economic inclusivity in horror. I think that's really important. And yeah, this is a lot of fun. You're you're the, this is just turning into a gush fest, but you know, you're the hardest working man in horror. <laughs> I was glad that we could bookend some uh, some sensibility when it comes to consumerism to uh, bookend our chat about metal dicks and whatnot. But as always, my friend, it's a pleasure uh, bullshitting about horror with you. Yeah, really, right back at you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJay. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.